Hi, I'm Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast The Blue Suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? The Blue Suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From an inherited Chinese English dictionary to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, our podcast showcases modern day artifacts of Asian America and what gets elevated to heirloom status. Find it by searching for The Blue Suit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I want to tell you about the professional playwriting debut of Daniel K. Isaac, who's the actor that you might know from Billions and The Chinese Lady. Mayi Theater Company presents Once Upon a Korean Time. Mixing traditional fables with the horrors of the Korean War, Daniel K. Isaac's epic new play is a funny and deeply moving analog for the experiences of the Korean American diaspora. Isaac definitely moves his characters through time, tracing the legacies of trauma that are passed on from one generation to the next, and the various coping mechanisms each one uses to soldier on. The show features sea kings, bubbles, tigers, generational trauma, and barbecue. Previews begin August 23rd at La Mama's Ellen Stewart Theater in New York City. It's a strictly limited engagement through September 18th only. Tickets are now available by visiting ma-yi-theater, with an R-E at the end, dot org. Use the exclusive code SATURDAY for $30 tickets. That's $15 off regular admission. And it's valid through September 1st only. Check it out! I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our eighth season, and we're talking about Asian American sci fi. And this is actually the third of a three-episode arc that we're doing on the web series Future States. As I mentioned in the last episode, Future States to me is kind of a turning point in Asian American independent sci-fi, maybe even Asian American independent film. This is not a series that is specifically about Asian Americans, but it was a ITVS slash public television series that was going to be shown on TV, on the internet, where every episode, kind of like The Twilight Zone or something, is a standalone story. And each one is directed by a different filmmaker. And each episode is supposed to think about a story from the future, whether it's like five years in the future or 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future, whatever. And also, interestingly, each story is engaged with issues of politics, of society, of culture. And they really wanted to take an indie approach to it. Right? Like These aren't just films here to entertain, but to really challenge us. I like thinking about how Future States came and went right before Black Mirror took off. Oh. Black Mirror is also like this. Every episode is a standalone vision of some kind of dystopic future. Future States did it first, and it was full of non-white filmmakers and non-white stories. And notably for us, many Asian-American stories works by Asian-American directors. So if you want to hear more about Future States and you haven't checked out our previous episodes, we had an episode with Greg Pak, who directed two of the episodes. And then we did another episode that was talking about some of the episodes directed by Asian-Americans about Asian-American stories. But we left out one um, in our conversation last week because I think it's the most notable of the Future States short films. And in fact, it was expanded into a feature film. So we figured 
let's dedicate an entire episode to the short film and the feature. We're going to be talking about Advantageous, directed by Jennifer Pong. The short film was released in 2012, and it was expanded into a feature that was released in 2015, and it's on Netflix. I think when we were thinking about this season of Asian American sci-fi, which is specifically about Asian American auteurs behind science fiction films as opposed to like Hollywood science fiction films that happen to have Asian Americans in them. In many ways, I think we were kind of leading up to advantageous, right? Would you say that? Yeah, totally. I actually feel like we structured our season around it, consciously or not. This is sort of what we're all building up to. That prior to this, there were all of these like not quite science fiction films, films that are dealing with sci-fi issues, but maybe not tackling it in terms of the genre, because we knew that it was going to build up to the film that was going to bring it all together. And that was advantageous. It's also an excellent, excellent film. The short film is also pretty easily findable online. It's on YouTube. The Future States YouTube channel. Okay, so who out there thinks they have an imagination? Everyone? Okay, everyone. Close your eyes. Jennifer Pong had previously made a feature film called Half-Life in 2008, which got into Sundance, and it was also a science fiction film. So it makes a lot of sense that she would be invited to be one of the directors of Future States. The short stars Jacqueline Kim as a single mother to a young girl, played by Samantha Kim. Why did you have me? You had to struggle so much. You make me very happy. She's the face of this company that's working on some technology with a goal of transplanting one person's consciousness into another person's body. We are working to offer you the safest alternatives to invasive cosmetic surgery. So the idea is if you had a terminal illness or something, you could still keep all of your memories and identity, but put it into a new body. The short film begins by saying it's 2041. Unemployment is really high. Jacqueline Kim's character named Gwen is realizing she wants to get to the next level in her job as the spokesperson for this cosmetics company. The issue is when she brings this up with her boss, her boss says, hmm, actually, we have been thinking about your employment and actually we want to get rid of you. We're obligated to go a different direction for the face of the center. And he uses a really important loaded term. He says, our company feels that we need a more, quote, universal spokesperson. And I feel like if you're a person of color watching this, you'll know exactly what they mean by universal. Yeah, it's not only universal, but someone who can tap into a younger market. Am I too old? And so Gwen knows that there's one last way she can stick around, which is what if she not only is the spokesperson for the company, but she also undergoes the procedure herself. The procedure you're launching, use it on me. Now open your eyes. That world is here, and it's yours. What better way to promote the company and to promote the wonders that is this procedure than to have gone through it herself? What she's proposing is, all right, you just basically said I'm too old and too Asian to be your spokesperson. What if you make me whatever you want me to be? Can I keep my job? 
Because on top of that, she's feeling pressure because her daughter didn't get into the top magnet school. And therefore, in order to get ahead in this cutthroat society, she's going to have to go to a very expensive private school. And so Gwen is like, at, at this moment, I need to do whatever I can to keep my job, to make money, and to ensure my daughter's future success. That's kind of how the movie <laughs> takes off. So I hadn't seen the short since 2012 when it first came out. Since then, I'd seen the feature version a couple of times. So re-watching this short film, you really feel how this short is just begging to become a feature. Yeah. It's just like teeming with so much story. Like you can see like it's going to burst out of this boundary. Tell me about this backstory. Tell me more about this company. Tell me more about her relationship with your family. Tell us more about like the school, the pressures of the school. And so the feature version really expands upon all of this. I had the opposite experience where I really had a clear memory of the short. And then watching the feature was really fun because it was almost like seeing more of the puzzle. We just get sort of glimpses of this new semi-apocalyptic world. That's something that Jennifer Pong and also um, Jacqueline Kim, who becomes a co-writer of the feature, delve deeper into. One of the other... Um, Really fascinating things about the feature is that because it was shot three years later, I think the daughter character changes a little bit. You sort of see her perspective a little bit more. She seems more of a presence. And you really get the sense of, we're doing this for her. Yeah, I just feel like <laughs> the feature made everything a lot creepier because it gave more stakes. I think another part of this way in which the future seems just more desperate is she gives us more glimpses into this huge class stratification that is everywhere in this future where you just have people sleeping in the streets everywhere mm. in the short film you get the sense that this is like a classic asian american story where the parents will do anything it takes for the kids to become educationally successful that's sort of like embedded in so many immigrant stories too, right? Like we moved to the United States so you can have a good education. So you can have what I didn't have. And it's kind of the same formula, right? Like I will do whatever it takes, including transferring bodies and becoming unrecognizable to my own kids so that my kids can excel. I mean, in some ways it's like the story of I will move to America and become somebody else. I will assimilate and become somebody else just so my kids can have access to something else. A hundred percent, yeah. Whereas the feature, there's a lot more to it than that. This doesn't just feel like a routine Asian American story. It feels like this is a different kind of future that we are trying to adapt to. It has to do with class and war. And so we're not just trying to assimilate and trying to blend in, trying to like have all this cultural capital. She speaks French in this movie um, in order to show how high class she is. So it's not just about ascending class for the sake of ascending class. It's sort of like we're ascending class because if we don't, we are gonna, we're gonna die. We're not going to be protected anymore. Yeah. Or, or maybe it is the same story, actually, but just a much more exaggerated and scary version of the usual Asian American immigrant story. In the non-sci-fi version, it's not necessarily that we're going to die, but we're going to fail, right? It, but it's also like we're going to lose a part of ourselves. Like coming to the United States, oftentimes in the classic intergenerational conflict Asian American melodrama, it's the parents at the end having to relent. All right, well, I came to this country. Maybe we should let our child's data white person or something, right? Like they, they will become somebody different. But, you know, that's the sacrifice we made so that they can get ahead. In that story, it's like you're realizing the children are going to be a little bit different, right? But yeah. in this story, it's like, how do the parents change? And how does that bond change? I think yeah, that's, what's, yeah. that's the tension in this story. We were just talking about how it seems like a lot of the episodes that we've done prior were leading up to this. And it was 
interesting watching this after watching Two Lies. Two Lies was a short in 1990 by Pamela Tom where the mother gets this surgery and it's from the perspective of the daughters and they're not sure how that surgery is changing their mom. And this is like the same thing where this procedure that Gwen, who's Jacqueline Kim's character, gets is not supposed to change her. But there's risks involved, right? Because with any sort of new technology, you don't know if it's going to play out the way it's supposed to, right? So I think that's kind of what happens in both the short and the feature film, where some of the known risks come true. There's a lot of pain and stuff, but I think... The part that is horrifying, I guess, is sort of like, what if the bond between mother and daughter doesn't get transferred in the correct way? (laughs) Yeah. What does technology do to families? Especially technologies that are in the name of making the family better. Yeah, I think the way they phrase it in both the short and the future is that animalistic connection is what's gone. It's interesting. They call it animalistic, but it's just the part that's not technology, right? Yeah, the flesh. The part that can't be replicated by technology. But it's interesting, though, because I th- I don't think they make it so clear-cut. Then it becomes sort of a nature versus nurture thing, right? Like, which parts can't you get back? Which parts can you rebuild? And is it ever the same? And then it's just kind of ambiguous, right? Yeah. And I think that ambiguity is really productive. This is not an anti-technology movie. Yeah. If anything, it's anti the way we think about class. Yeah. And the competition that we create for ourselves where people have to lose. And, of course, related to that is the unequal opportunities given to women to people of color, to older people within this cutthroat society. That's what this film is way more interested in dissecting rather than is technology just going to destroy us. I think it frames technology as just like experimental and fallible, right? Whereas the evils are just cruelty, right? (laughs) Indifference. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the short film states up front that this is set in like 2041. In the feature, it doesn't say when this film is set. It just seems like it's in the near future. And so for me, the short feels distant. Like this is just some kind of strange future that hopefully we don't stumble into. Whereas the feature to me, because it's not like a big budget sci-fi movie the way that Star Trek is, it still feels like our world, just with a little bit more technology. And so it feels like this is not too far away from us right now. And I think that adds also to the sense of urgency. Oh, for sure. I think it's partially because we're watching it in the future, right? So as I was re-watching it now, in the film, it's a world where there are terrorist attacks every day and nobody even blinks an eye because it's so normal. And we're in the midst of like these mass shootings every day. It kind of feels like that because we just can't process all that trauma on a day-to-day basis. So that part felt really current, like in a really tragic way. We are on the cusp of self-driving cars. She shows like these holograms. That doesn't seem that futuristic anymore when there's... And we're talking to each other on Zoom right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a hologram. (laughs) And also like this idea of transplanting one's consciousness. We also feel like we're on the cusp of something like that with artificial intelligence and how do we upload our memories. I mean, like people are working on stuff like this. Like it doesn't seem as impossible as intergalactic travel. And just the idea of bettering yourself, bettering your appearance, that seems really current too. Not only kind of the technologies we have to make ourselves look younger, but also um, these images we create for ourselves in the online world where, you know, now everything's like filtered. I forget a lot of the times when I'm looking at videos online that they could have filters. 
I think I'm always like, oh yeah, that just seems like the real world. And later you're like, oh yeah, we're probably seeing everybody through these fake filters. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also like, yeah, an extension of the way we already live online. We kind of hide behind our avatars. We create profiles for ourselves in order to better sell ourselves. This is just the same, but making that onto our bodies itself. Like our bodies become the canvas and not just like our internet profile. Nowadays with all these YouTube, TikTok makeup transformations, some of them feel like, like, oh yeah, this is like an entirely different look. Or if in the future, like work from home, we don't actually have to show up anymore. Our embodied selves are not as maybe useful in our work life. So maybe there are ways in which if we could just create some kind of zoom filter for ourselves and look younger or look more quote unquote universal. This film like opens up these questions of what do our bodies mean in a marketplace that requires us to be a certain kind of type. And I think what really impressed me about Advantageous was like, they didn't just allude to this kind of discrimination. Like this movie is about discrimination. Like again, like in terms of age, gender and race. We always hope that like sci-fi can be the genre that can make us ask questions about seemingly extreme scenarios that are actually quite close and scenarios that are about these kinds of real world discrimination. And this is the film that for me that really put it all together. A lot of Hollywood storytelling casts people of color in sci-fi to show kind of this utopic future where race is not an issue anymore and discrimination is not an issue anymore. It's sort of this idea of like we are all melding into one. I think it took an Asian American filmmaker to be like actually in an apocalyptic world all of this discrimination stuff is going to get worse not better yeah i i, I think you're right like because um, greg pak talked about this a little bit too in the episode we did with him i think he is more invested in this idea of what some might call it like a post-racial future where if you're going to pick the future you should probably acknowledge that we're going to become more and more diverse and therefore the diversity is there not to draw attention to race but just to acknowledge that the future contains diversity what Advantageous does is that in the future, we don't become more diverse. We don't become this melting pot. We actually become more white. We have the technologies to become more quote unquote universal, which is coded as white. So that this East Asian woman becomes sort of white passing through technology in order to get ahead. And maybe what we're going to get is a stratification between those who survive in the world passing as white and then everybody else who is the victim of violence and who is subjected to living in the streets. So that's a very different portrait of the future than we had been thinking about in terms of we're all mixed race or that we are all very diverse in the Star Trek kind of way. I was reading interviews with her and that was a very specific choice where, especially in the feature film, you see Gwen and her daughter going through potential new looks together. None of them are Asian. And that was purposeful on Jennifer's part. And that's such a different way of thinking about techno-orientalism, right, that we started the season on, which is like the future is going to be Asian and what that means. Here it's like, no, like in this future, nobody chooses to be Asian. If you choose to be Asian, you're not going to get the opportunities you would otherwise. And then will you then not be successful? And these are like really dystopic ways of thinking about like very contemporary issues, including issues of like, you know, Asians relationship with Ivy League schools that we hear about in the press and in our communities all the time. Yeah, for sure. This movie, I've always just really enjoyed it as a work of science fiction. I think our conversation here, I'm liking this conversation, but it's making us find that this film is a lot darker than I, than I had thought of before. Yeah, that's what I, I think watching it now, I was like, this is dark. <laughs> yeah, because I think the first time I watched it, I'm just like in awe of, wow, you did it. Like this movie sparkles with a certain like sci-fi veneer. Like you did the genre, but I think she did so much more. 
she kind of inverted many things and kind of told a story that, as you're saying, like maybe nobody else could have told. There's a reason we kind of structured our season around it. This is the one. Should we talk more about the sparkle, though? I do want to talk about sparkle. Yeah, and, and we should also shout out Rich Wong, who is the cinematographer. I mean, I could tell that this is not a big budget movie, but the special effects are there in just the right places to make you notice and be like, all right, this is a real sci-fi movie. I think that's just how much we don't get to see these type of stories, that when you see it, you're just like, oh, I can't believe you pulled that off, right? So that's the sparkle, I think, where you're like, oh my gosh, like this is a sci-fi thing specifically around Asian Americans and it's so specific and detailed and then you pull it off because I think that's part of the fun of the sci-fi genre too where it's like you create this new world and you have to create all of these rules and is it all gonna work and is it all gonna have a payoff you know and it doesn't have to cost a ton of money like I'm thinking about like the probably the most iconic shot of both films is of Jacqueline Kim's character she's got all of these like electro things sticking out of her head Right. These tubes that are attached to this thing in her head. It's very practical effects. It's not super CGI. It just seems like these tubes are lit up with light. When they went to make the feature, I think they just repurposed the same shots. I don't even know if they reshot that scene. It looks exactly the same to me. And it's to me, this is the most iconic image of the film. It's on the Blu-ray cover that I'm looking at right now. There's a shot that's really about her face and not just the technologies that are beaming from it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the moments that have emotional resonance don't have anything to do with futuristic technology. I think she talks about that in interviews too, where she wanted to juxtapose the futuristic technologies with stuff like the piano, you know? And a lot of the bonding moments you see with mother and daughter are over things that have nothing to do with technology. Because a lot of it is about like maintaining really old kinds of class markers, right? like the piano speaking in French and then like this whole like vision of this private school and that's when you have like all the other mothers get together and oh god <laughs> this is why I kept thinking about two lies because in our episode with two lies I kept half joking but half seriously saying like this is not just sci-fi but horror yeah. <laughs> but also like when I watched Advantageous for the first time I did not have a daughter that was around that age I don't know how old the daughter is so my daughter's not quite that age but I feel like those scenes with the mothers talking and trying to get their kids into better schools. I'm like, oh, this is this straight up present day horror. <laughs> Shout out to Teresa Navarro who plays one of the mothers. And it's also one of the producers of this film. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, so this film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. I remember it being kind of immediately a movie that people were talking about. I actually remember Emily Yoshida's review of it coming out of Sundance and how moved she was. Like she basically said, this is the movie I've been waiting for. And then it won a special award at Sundance for... Jennifer Pong and Jacqueline Kim's collaboration, which I think is a, of all awards to give it, I think it's lovely that it was an award that's kind of drawing attention to the fact that, you know, two Asian American women telling a story that no one else could have told. Yeah. And then it very quickly got picked up by Netflix and it's still on Netflix. And so unlike everything else in this season, <laughs> you could <can, laughs> go watch this right now if you have Netflix. And if not, you have YouTube and you can go on and watch the short film, which is like 22 minutes or so and highly recommended. It's also worth mentioning that perhaps as a result of all of this, Jennifer Pong has been pretty involved in like film independent and she's a, you know, a regular director on television series, including a lot of sci-fi shows like The Expanse. She worked on Quantico. She did an MCU series like Cloak and Dagger. She's done some DC series like Stargirl. She worked on a show called Resident Alien, another sci-fi 
show. Yeah, so I think as much as Greg Pak, maybe even more at this point. She's a major Asian American director of science fiction. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is WakeUpSatSchool. Class dismissed. Hello, I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.